Well, let's turn our attention this morning to the letters of John. That's where we've been at for some nine weeks. We're going to be in chapter four, and if you want, you can turn there now. So if somebody came up to you and inquired to you, like, what is your idea of an idyllic life, you would probably have to think on it for a moment, but there would be amongst us a multitude of different answers to that question of, well, what is my ideal reality in life? Where is it that I could possibly be happy, continuously ongoing for the rest of my life? Maybe it would be as simple as this thought. Maybe idyllic realities would just be that I would wake up in the morning with a purpose and I would go to bed in the evening feeling satisfied. Maybe that would be enough for you. Or or maybe it would center on success, that everything that you touched would be successful. You had that kind of Midas touch to things. Or maybe it would be very, very specific for you. A specific location, maybe with specific people. Like, I want to be on a beach somewhere with my family and a few friends that we just live in this little beach hut community and we just have money's not a care of ours, uh, work does not exist, we just hang out all day. Maybe that's your idyllic setting in life. But what we know, regardless of what your hope would be in that, is that there are very, very few people who are actually living in that ideal reality themselves. Consider this, that Americans, when polled about whether or not they're happy, that the highest that Americans have ever polled in the history of happiness polls, I'm the odd guy that knows that statistic, the highest that they've ever polled is 35%. 35% is the highest number or percentage of Americans that have said that they are happy. Now, if you would put the word very in front of happy, that total is decimated even more. And so what we know, not just by feeling, but also by fact, is that very, very few people are living the way that they think that they have this idea that they would like to live for our own happiness and contentment. And so today, what we want to consider is that maybe, just maybe, 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 just maybe, so few would say that they're living idyllically that it isn't because they haven't tried hard enough or had enough money or that they found luck in their life or they're living in the wrong location? What if it's not even about any of the pressure that this world might have for us? What if flourishing and ongoing consistent joy aren't our realities simply because we are misguidingly, mis- misguidingly pursuing the wrong things? What if the message in the training of this world, both in the subliminal and the physical, train us up in a way to find fulfillment in things that will never bring us true fulfillment, happiness, or contentment? And not only that we are pursuing after the wrong objects, but what if we have wrongly defined what it even means to pursue? And so that's what we want to consider today. And as we can look in this letter of John, John, the author, the author of this letter, compels a different idyllic setting, reality, for those who are in Christ, as well as prescribing a different way of achieving it, a different way of going about gaining it. John doesn't point to a gradual acquisition of objects 
and positions and money that combine together in some way in our future that brings us fulfillment, happiness, and satisfaction consistently and ongoingly. He doesn't point to that, but rather he points to two enlightened postures for the flourishing and the joy of those who are in Christ, as well as redefining how one pursues after those postures. And so today, just to set our course so you know where we're headed, we're going to walk into considering these two enlightened postures that John talks about and then how one goes about acquiring those postures. And so these are the two enlightened postures that we're going to talk about today. Uh, Number one is that there is a greatness in us that is greater than any or anything, anyone or anything of this world, that we would have that as a posture in our life. And, And number two is that a perfected love in us removes all fear, that we would live with a perfected love in us that is removing all fear. And the acquisition of those postures comes not through the means that this world communicates, but by different means that the gospel communicates. That we die instead of try. These two, there are two dominant realities for the believer that are acquired through dying to self, not trying through effort. And so we are dying towards these two realities, that we are living through Christ, not for Christ. And there's an important difference between those two aspects. And number two is that we are coming to know and believe the love that God has for us. And as we walk through these few different ideas, we're going to aim at what a perfected love is and isn't. And so would you just join me in prayer as we enter our time into Scripture? Father, we just come before you today and we just, we just boldly um, confess that we believe that your word sustains our life. And so, Lord, we elevate it here today. Lord, will you speak to us through this word, through your Holy Spirit, that you might produce in us uh, better creations than we are now, uh, a new sense of love for you and others, and a desire to walk in your way. And we pray this in your amazing name, Jesus. Amen. Today in our chapter, in chapter 4, we're going to skip down to verse 4. We're going to end our time in verse 19. Uh, We have been walking through this letter, which John has been compelling these three different types of tests for churches that he loves in the area of Asia Minor, which is the modern-day area of Turkey. And John has been compelling three different tests uh, because this church is being actively deceived and broken apart. And so he is giving these tests so people know what a true believer is. There's a test of truth, the right belief in Jesus, the test of obedience, right? Obedience to God's command. And there's the test of love, right love for one another. And so John is driving these ideas in like a screw, constantly coming back to them over and over again for our understanding and to embolden his concern for his people. And where we pick up here in verse 4, John reminds his reader of their position in Christ because of Christ, a position that you and I need to be reminded of today as well. And so let's read this together starting in verse 4. It'll be on your screen. You can read it in your journals as well. 
Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world, therefore they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we, ought to, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God if we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. By this, we know that we abide in him and he in us, because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent this his Son to be the Savior of the world. And whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. And so we have come to know and to believe that the love that God has had for us God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. These are great words by John, who in the beginning has this loving admonishment for his little children. His children inside the struggle of an event that is breaking apart this church in the area of Asia Meyer, a struggle that is creating division, that is watching people leave the fellowship, that is watching people be deceived by false teachers and false teaching. John reminds them of who they are in Christ because of Christ, a reality that is not based upon their situation or their understanding, but simply because of their adoption as sons and daughters of God by the means of grace and mercy and love by faith. God is the creator of everyone and everything. We say this, he's the creator of everyone and everything. God has created everything in his good pleasure. But God is not the father of everyone. God is the creator of all, but not the father of all. A father to all of those who surrender their lives to walk in his life, in his light, to confess and turn and walk in his fullness. He is a father to those by the means of God's grace and mercy. And upon our adoption, God gives to us the Holy Spirit as a gift to all of his children, and it is he the Holy Spirit, that is greater in me 
than he who is in the world. And the he of the world that John is referring to is Satan and his allies. Satan, the ruler of this world. And so what John is saying is that he who is in you is greater than anyone or anything or any power that could be known on this earth. And such is true for us. John is commending his believers to not fear these deceivers or these antichrists who are among you. You are the ones that have the ultimate victory. You are the ones who have the resource of victory in your life. He is greater than they are. And we need to remember this today. It means this for you and I who are of faith. Those who are true Christians are never the ones who are in a position of weakness. We are always the ones in a position of strength. John says, he who is greater in you is greater than he who is in this world. He's saying that it is only because of he that is in you is that your reality. And because of that, you are in a position of strength. Meaning this, everything I need is met in him who is in me. I can say to the world, I don't need your love. I don't need your comfort. I don't need your goods. I don't need your significance. I have in me something greater than you. I don't need your approval. He is all that I need. I have access to a victory that was given to me by God, and I am the prized object of his affections, one that is greater than all. And if I believe that, and I walk in that, it frees me up to not fear or worry or to need to be proven right by this world or feel important or significance because I am in him. I just need him. Think about this. Like, if I, in my possession, have everything that is greater than what you have, if everything that I have is greater than what you have, what could you give to me that would fulfill me? And what could you say to me or do to me that would cause me to fear and tremble? Nothing. It would be as a first grader coming up to me and saying, I'm going to kick your butt. I don't like that shirt. In what world could a first grader beat me up? Now, I know some of your brains are going, well, I know some pretty big first graders, Steve. I don't know about that. And I would say, no. <laughs> and as I'm speaking this, I'm compelled to say to you, don't spread rumors that your pastor is, uh, is telling you that I could beat up first graders. That's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying if I needed to, okay? <laughs> if I needed to, I could. What we have as a believer is greater than anything in this world. And it's foolish to think that this world could give us what we need when it's already met in him who is in us. Now, I would say that every one of us, including myself, we would sign up for this in a heartbeat. We desire, I want God to be greater in me that I could not fear the world, that I could be alleviated uh, uh, from the, the malaise and the worry towards this world. We all want that. The rub is, is that we don't know how exactly to have it. And we don't know because most of our basic tools of getting things that we want on this earth 
are not the same tools to acquire things in God's kingdom. As a believer, greatness in me is not acquired by the means of effort or accomplishment or money, but greatness in me comes through me dying, not through the means of trying. For one to be greater in me refers that he's greater than me. It means that I must be lesser. It doesn't say that you are greater than he who is in the world, but he is greater. We must be lesser. He must be more. And John contends this idea in verse 9 in chapter 4 when he says, In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his Son into this world so that we might live through him. In this love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. And so what John is saying is that greatness, the kind of greatness that is better than anything in this world, will be gained only by the means of one losing their own identity, dying to themselves, and to exchange it for somebody else living in them, through them and that person being Christ. Christ, whose great love for me removed my guilt, my condemnation, my punishment because of my sin. He became my propitiation. As Paul writes it in the letter of uh, 1 Corinthians, he says, he who knew no sin became sin that we might become the righteousness of God. And so our greatness is not innate, it's not natural, and it's not learned. But it rather comes from the outside. It is alien and it is foreign. And it requires nothing less than me surrendering my own identity, my own pursuit of my own greatness to possess it. It is confessing what is true of my own life. It is confessing the absolute truth of my life. I can't. I can't fix me. I never could. Only you, God, can do that. Only you, God, can work in me in that way. I need nothing less than the holy, infinite, creator, awesome God to live in me and through me to deal and take away with this void, this crevice of brokenness and dissatisfaction that wrecks havoc on my life and on others' lives through me. It means that we no longer live as we would live, but we would live as Christ would live in us, through us. All that is of Christ, his nature, his character, his belief, propelling itself through my life, my heart, my love, my thoughts, all of them, surrendering, laying down my own identity for a God who fully met the demands of justice for our sins in Christ through love, grace, and sacrifice. Scripture compels it this way. If we look at Galatians 2, it says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. In 1 Peter it says, blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And then in the Gospel of Mark, it says in the 8th chapter, For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life because of me and the gospel will save it. And Mark, the author of that gospel, is not just saying your physical death for the gospel, but your life in an abstract way that you are not your own anymore. You lay down your life to live through Christ. And we live through Christ by knowing and believing the great love that he has for us. That is our dying desire, that we remind ourselves of his great love for us, that we become less because he is more. And living through Christ is way different than living for God. God has never called you to live for God without commanding you to live through Christ. Your whole life compels that you could not, by your own effort, live for God. Our brothers, the ancient Israelites, aimed to keep God's perfect law by effort. That effort proved to be in vain. They couldn't. Our whole lives speak that we could not live for God. If I could, then Christ's sacrifice would have been in vain. Instead, we live through Christ meaning I surrender my preferences, my will, my glory, my knowledge. It's no longer about what I love, but it's about what God loves. It's no matter what I think, it's about what God thinks. It's not about what I know, it's about what he knows. It's not about my ability or glory, it's about his. I have to be lesser than I am now. I must die to self and try less. Dying, not trying, which is for, listen, my flourishing and my joy to live through God, by God, with God is the greatest place that God's creation could ever be. It is the epicenter of joy and flourishing. And John says that when we live through Christ, we have grown to know and believe his love for us, a love that has changed us, redefined us, and saved us. This is where we experience this idyllic setting for those who are believers. A God in us who is greater than anything in this world. What do I need from you that I don't have in him? And in a God who is greater in me, he brings to us a love that is perfected through his son. A perfect love that casts out all fear and makes us shine like the sun to others that they may see the richness of Christ in our life. John says in this letter that God is love. In verse 16, he says, so we have come to know and believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. Now, one of the things that I like to do when I prepare for any text is to, to read into these texts and, and try to figure out what are the common misconceptions and misunderstandings and misinterpretations that this world considers when they look at this. And there are many gross misunderstandings of what John is saying here when he says that God is love. What John is compelling to us is not the complete definition 
of God when he says God is love. He's not saying that's all that there is to know about love. He's just simply saying that the core nature of God is love. And the very origin of love is with God. John is not saying in the statement, God is love, everything to be known about God, but rather his most important attribute. Scripture also says that God is spirit, that God is light, that God is a consuming fire. Love is not all there is to know about God, but behind all that God does. It does not contradict God's holiness, his justice, his righteousness, but rather it informs all of those attributes that we know that God's holiness is loving, that God's righteousness is loving, that his justice is perfect in love. It is his core motivation. And so it is right to say that God is love, but it's wrong to say that love is God. Love, as we know it in this world, is fractured, misinformed. That's not what John is contending in this. And certainly this is what many would like to put on this scripture, that love is all that matters. And if we love God that loves others, that's good. And I'm, look, there is truth in that, but it's missing the mark on what John is trying to say. It is a love that is trying to be redefined into this emotional feeling world of, of well-wishing towards one another and not the agape love that we talked about last week that is spontaneous and sacrificial, looking out for the welfare and the justice of people with compassion because of God in us. And, and so I want to, to speak towards two thoughts that I think are mischaracterized in this text. We often, when we read Scripture, especially these letters— when we talk about Galatians and Corinthians and Ephesians and these letters that John writes here, we forget that we are reading somebody else's mail. John wrote this letter, a Christian, to other Christians in churches in the area of Asia Minor. He, a Christian, wrote this to Christians for the benefit of future Christians. But what many people want to do is pluck out verses and groupings of verses and take them out of their context and apply them to audiences that they were never meant to be applied to. When we look at what John is talking about here, he is talking about love in the context of brotherly love. A test of love that says that you should love your brothers and sisters in Christ. He's not talking about worldly love. We are to love our neighbor, but that's not what John is talking about here. He's talking about love of those who pass the test of truth, obedience, and love. We simply cannot change the context or change the intended audience. That would be wrong to do. A second thought is this, is look, we are all created in the Imago Dei, meaning the image of God, every one of us created in the image of God. And if that is true, that means because God is love that we were created with the ability to know and to give love. But the problem is, is that love, like ourselves, this world, was fractured and broken in the fall. In Genesis 3, we read about it. When sin and death came into this world, love as we knew it in the garden, that perfect love was fractured. Meaning this is that the human race cannot by our own accord, by our own effort and strength, love somebody the way that God compels us to love one another. But rather, we as Christians take the 
the one who is the author of love. We take that love and we give it to him and say, Father, teach me, show me through you how I love people, how I love like you loved. The world would tell you that love is sufficient, but it's not. It's fractured. John contends abiding love needs perfected in Christ. And a love that needs to be perfected is not a love that is all-sufficient. So friends, understand that all love belongs to God because it is completed and perfected in him who created it. And that only happens when we die to self and live through Christ. It is a love that doesn't cause us to fear, a perfect love that doesn't see God as somebody to be uh, concerned about. He's going to punish me. Is God going to smite me here? It's a, it's, a, it's a love that understands the compassion and the mercy that God has on me that can make, help me boldly approach the throne of God as his friend, as his child, because he continues to show his compassion and mercy, pouring his love onto me and into me through his son. So today, my hope is that these beautiful words here that John writes, our ancient brother and the Holy Spirit, would compel to you the beauty of the idyllic reality of the Christian. It is not like the world. It's not about success, but rather it's about enlightened postures. Look, the Christian life isn't easy. It's not even safe. You will have hardships and tragedy in it. But it's a life that's enlightened and strengthened by one who is greater in you than you and in the world. And by a love that is being perfected, that casts out all fear. And that is where we should desire to be, to become less, that he might be more in us. Dying to our own perspective and way and allowing God to live through us. And so I leave us today with the words of Paul in the book of Philippians, in chapter 4, when he says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Paul doesn't say, I can do all things because of Christ. He doesn't say, I can do all things for Christ. He doesn't say that Christ allows me to do all things, but rather he says, through Christ, a sacrificial dying of self, so that Christ can live through me and do all things and strengthen me. Would you pray with me? Oh, Jesus, we have tried and failed, tried and failed, tried and failed, and then again to live for you. And so, Father, teach us a new way today. One that calls us not to live from the inside or the outside in, striving to find joy contentment and happiness from the outside, but rather, Father, show us the beauty of transformation from the inside out that comes from you living through us. And so let us surrender our way, our hearts, our lives, our pride that we would die to our own type of love, our own attitude, our own hearts and thoughts, and that we would let rule and reign your way, your heart, your love, your thoughts, that we become more in us than our own. And so help us to be less, Lord. Teach us to be less, that in being less, we will find our more. A greatness in me that is greater than myself and anything in this world. 
a greatness that completes a love that is perfect and removes all fear. So let, let us come, Lord, just to you today that we would richly come to know and believe of your great love. And we pray this in your beautiful name, Jesus. Amen.